You're listening to Couch Kicker, sponsored by Action Challenge, the podcast that wants you to push yourself further. My name's Jan, I'm your host, and this is episode three. Hello, Couch Kickers. How are you? I am well, thanks for asking. I just wanted to say a big thank you to everyone who's been downloading and listening to the podcast over on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and I'm also pleased to announce we are now on Google Podcasts, so there is no excuse for not getting your couch kicking fix. Whether you're a new listener or you're coming back for more, don't forget to subscribe, and then we will get delivered over the fiber optic cables, over the airwaves, over the 5G, directly into your ears, delivering a weekly dose of inspiration so you can kick that couch habit and do more. What I'm enjoying about this podcast is the guests that I'm speaking with. And when I started out, I knew it would be important to speak to people with a range of experiences, a range of different backgrounds, you know, each one with a different story to tell that would inspire me and you in some way to push ourselves further. Now, our first guest, Dean, he was someone who's performed at elite levels throughout his career in terms of physical fitness and mental strength, and that culminated in a record-breaking 14,000-mile cycle. Last week, we had Joy, who showed a different kind of mental strength in letting go of other people's expectations of her and went right outside of her comfort zone into the world of battle rap. And this week, we have a guest who hasn't left his comfort zone so much as crossed the borders of his comfort zone, conducted a hostile takeover of everything outside of it, and established that as his new comfort zone as the ruler and dictator of the uncomfort zone. It's a really good chat that covers a range of topics that I found interesting, from breaking a record with a high-altitude comedy show at Everest Base Camp, to how he maintains a focus on well-being when work and schedules can interrupt your routine. I think you'll enjoy listening to it. But before we get on to that, we have these words from the sponsors. We are sponsored today by the Altitude Center. The Altitude Center are experts in physical training and conditioning using their specialized altitude chambers and equipment. They can prepare you for a high altitude trek or they can use those effects of altitude to help with your conditioning and training. You know how these long distance runners all go up into the mountains to train? Well, this is why. When you're at altitude, your body reacts by producing more red blood cells, which means with every breath you take, you're bringing in more oxygen. More oxygen for your muscles means better performance. But not everyone can afford to go fly out into the mountains and train. It can cost a lot of money for your flights, for your accommodation, and everything that's involved in getting yourself out there where the altitude can take an effect which is where the Altitude Center comes in. Uh, they offer that experience and that conditioning that you get from being at altitude at a fraction of the cost and right on your doorstep in this country. They're based in London and they're offering listeners to the Couch Kicker podcast a whopping great big 50% off a single session pass, giving you the chance to try out their services in their altitude chamber and see how you get on. Just enter the code COUCH when booking a single session at altitudecenter.com. That's code COUCH, C-O-U-C-H, at altitudecenter.com. 
And our headline sponsor making all of this possible is Action Challenge. So action, tick, challenges, tick, crossing off your bucket list and seeing the world, tick, 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 tick. Action Challenge run treks and challenges across the world from Everest Base Camp in Kilimanjaro to their hugely popular Ultra Challenge series here in the UK. This series attracts over 25,000 people every year. They walk, they jog, they run. These courses that are 25 kilometers, 50 kilometers, 100 kilometers, you can choose your distance, you can choose how you take it on in some of the UK's most scenic and challenging trails. They run the London to Brighton Challenge, one of the top 10 fundraising events in the country where you can set off from London on foot and walk, jog or run all the way down to Brighton. Plus they have uh, the brand new Yorkshire Challenge for 2021 based up in Nidderdale, right on the edge of the Yorkshire Dales. Personally, I'm excited about by this. Uh, I grew up in Yorkshire. Uh, whichever one you choose to do, they are mass participation challenges that work in our COVID secure world. At the end of September, they ran the Chilton Challenge. They had 1,200 people down there, all compliant with government guidelines, with face masks, with hygiene stations, and a unique rolling start system that allowed for social distancing, but without taking away any of the fun and enjoyment from being out on the trail. A local council safety inspector actually called it a model event. So if you want to take part in a mass sporting event for 2021, your best chance of actually getting out there and taking it on in this new normal that we're facing is to go out there and book yourself an ultra challenge. They're all fully supported with meals, drinks, snacks all included. Plus you get a rock star finish with a glass of fizz and a big shiny medal at the end. Go and check out ultrachallenge.com. See their early bird deals and offers giving you 10% off any place plus a snazzy and fashionable technical shirt you can wear to let everyone know that you're pushing yourself further. That's ultrachallenge.com. And we are done. So on to today's guest. Martin Moore is the adventure comedian. He is a successful circus performer and stand-up comedian. Martin's performed comedy around the world from the Hammersmith Apollo to an Italian prison. In April 2016, Martin was part of a team that set a world record for the highest altitude comedy show when him and three other comedians performed at 5,300 metres above sea level at Mount Everest Base Camp. This episode is slightly longer than usual, but I really couldn't bring myself to cut out any of Martin's stories. You're going to enjoy them. It's a good one. Here we go. So, Mr. Martin Moore, welcome to Couch Kicker. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very good. Thank you, mate. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. Not too bad. So, thanks for coming on. Do you want to tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself? Yes. So, my name is Martin Moore. I am a comedian from Northern Ireland. I, I Well, I, I usually say I was a circus performer. I still do circus shows, but not, uh, not full-time anymore. I just do them at like, festivals and so on. I'm mostly a stand-up comedian, and I like climbing up things and riding bicycles and swimming in the sea. Fantastic. That's a pretty broad spectrum of uh, abilities and talents. So you, uh, you're a stand-up comedian, you mentioned, and I know you also set the uh, a world record by performing a gig at Everest Base Camp. You know, We'll come on to that, hmm. I'm sure. But I think before we do that, I'd kind of like to go back 
to the start, which you mentioned there. You started out as a circus performer. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, so that I was a I was a circus performer from when I was a kid. I started off worked in the fair, worked on the fairground, so I've got that proper carny background. So I worked on the fairs, and then I was as a a young man, I was a juggler, as a professional juggler. And around about 1990, so I, I traveled the world, I, tur- I toured all over the place. Around about 1990, I, I just, I was living in Manchester in England and I had a training accident when I was doing an act called a freestanding ladder. It's basically a ladder that you balance on unsupported. Looks a little bit like stilt walking. When you've seen people stilt walking, looks a little bit like that. Yep. I juggle and so on, on top of that. Uh, in those days, my act was I climbed the, an eight-foot freestanding ladder, I jumped onto an eight-foot unicycle, and I did basketball tricks and trick walks. That was my that was my show. And I had an accident in training and broke my ankle. While I was off work with a broken ankle, I met a guy that I knew from before either of us were in, interested in comedy. And he, uh, you might know him, he's an English comedian called Dave Gorman. Yes. I met Dave on the street and Dave said, oh, while you're off work, I'm on crutches. Dave said to me, uh, well, while you're off work, there's a comedy club just opened up. And I went down to the comedy club and got interested. And in those days in Manchester, it was like Steve, Steve Coogan and John Thompson and Carolina Hearn and people like that. So there was an amazing scene. Henry Normal was there, amazing comedy scene. And I hadn't really encountered this as a circus act. I hadn't really seen it. And I just got interested and I, I started doing that. And then here I am now, whatever year this is, I'm still doing it. Can't imagine what the risk assessment was like for that ladder trick. Do you know, it's a different world, really a different world in those days. So I had, uh, now I have my, I have public liability insurance. And I have my insurance through my union, which is equity. But in those days, you used to have separate in insurance that was really expensive, and there were just some things that they wouldn't they wouldn't touch at all. No, no. And you said you were a circus performer from a kid. Did you do the classic thing as a child? You ran away to the circus, or was this something that was a family it was, tradition? It was a family tradition, but not uh, not exactly. It, so my uh, my father had passed away, and my mother, who, who had been in the circus as a tattooed fat lady. She was a tattooed fat lady in the circus. Wow. And um, uh, she'd stopped doing that and she actually had become slimmer of the year. This is ridiculous. Her, her biggest fame came because she lost all the weight, became slimmer of the year. So just a tattooed lady. Just a tattooed lady, yeah. And I'd stop, and that was all like long stopped when, when I came around. And I guess I knew people from that knew my family. But uh, yeah, started off and we were in those days I was based in Belfast. We were the very start of what was known as New Circus. And New Circus was the non-animal circus. Yeah. It almost was a, well, not even almost. It was like a political stance. We don't agree with having animals in circuses. And from that, the momentum grew. People liked it. And the the logical progression turned into Cirque du Soleil, which uh, became the biggest producer of live entertainment in the world. Yeah. I mean, they've struggled recently, though. They've got they've gone into bankruptcy. Yeah, yeah. Gone into bankruptcy. It's um it's a strange time now because all those performers, and quite a lot of them who I'm friends with, are suddenly going to come back into the marketplace and possibly with nowhere 
nowhere to go to. So it's, it's very mm. strange times. How did you find that kind of move going from, from circus into the comedy clubs? Was there much of a, a kind of leap across there or did you find it quite a natural move? Well, so here, here's an interesting thing. Uh, since we just mentioned the Cirque du Soleil uh, part of that, with, with now, I, so I teach quite a lot online. I teach comedy and I teach um, act development. And this is the thing that I've just been talking about recently because when the um, Soviet Union broke up in the 1980s, in those days, I was a juggler with all shiny white props and a, a white tuxedo, and I didn't have my beard in those days. So it was all like, a, a, and it was kind of in a Vegas style. So the kind of Shazam, you know, <laughs> all to music. And uh, here's a really weird one. In those days, you used to go to the leader of the band, who we always would refer to as the orchestra, when you did a gig and they would go, where's your dots? And you would give them sheet music because we did it all on sheet music in those days. Wow. It sounds like I'm talking about <laughs> the ancient past, doesn't yeah. it? Uh, but yeah, but what happened then was when, when, that, when the Soviet Union broke up and also um, people, so then people, really amazing acts flooded into, into Europe. And suddenly there were these phenomenal, you could get phenomenal jugglers next to nothing and all, yeah. all the touring circuses had these amazing soviet block jugglers that came in and then a lot of chinese jugglers came around circus performers and so i identified that and went right i need to put comedy into this i need to stand out these people that they're not doing anything and uh, they're not speaking so i yeah. started putting comedy in so when, when i did that very start of comedy i went to the comedy club and it's called the Frog and Bucket in Manchester. It was a tiny, it's a big club now. It was a tiny club. And the guy that booked it, when I spoke to him, he had seen my, he'd seen one of my circus shows. So the first time I was ever in a comedy club, I was a paid headline act on the very first time I was, I was ever in it. And first time ever on stage. In a comedy club, yeah. But I, was, wow. but I was doing comedy juggling, which I already had. So, so I was doing my comedy juggling act. And then I did that for a while, had pro a prop-based act, did that for a couple of years. And then I, I just went, I'm going to have one year of just doing stand-up and then see if I can do it. Just to prove to myself, I like a challenge, just as a challenge to myself, I'm going to have one year of just doing this full-time and see if I can do it. And, and that must be, I don't know, 20 years ago, maybe more. And I just stayed with it and, and liked it, yeah. How, how long did you keep the, uh, the the circus element in your act? So I dropped the circus element for a long time. Here's the here's the tragic tale. I have a condition in my hands, which is called Jupiter's contracture. And right. I've seen it because, uh, you know that English actor, Bill Nighy? Yeah. And if you ever notice him, he has his, his, um, his all but his scissor fingers. You know, the, the fingers that you would make if you were making scissor shape. Yeah, those fingers he can use, but his other fingers are really curled up. And Jupiter's contractor is a, a hereditary condition. It's a thickening of the tendons, and it causes your fingers to curl up. So for about ten years, I couldn't really do anything but very basic juggling. Wow. But my fingers were so curled up, and it affected everything. Like I was climbing on two fingers on each hand. It was really affecting everything. And um, Jupiter's contractor is actually quite cool in one aspect, is that it's genuinely known, and your listeners could Google this, it's genuinely known as Viking disease. Okay. 100% true, Viking disease. And what it is, it's because they traced the, it's hereditary, and they traced it back to people who have got our Nordic descent. 
and descended from the Vikings. So that's quite cool. But, um, but it kind of matches up with. I mean, the listeners won't see this, but you do have a fairly magnificent beard to go with uh, your Viking disease. You know what? That the day that that doctor uh, diagnosed that, he just had took one look at me. You're having trouble with your hands. <laughs> and anyway, long story short, I've had three operations on my hands, and the latest one was four years ago, and I'm pretty much back to full strength. I can do. Uh, I can now do. Uh, pull-ups and deadlifts at the gym and my hands are flat again and and that rekindled that kind of rekindled my circus career I've got a, a double act that I do now called Circus Sonus uh, me and a guy from Northern Ireland traveling the world with that uh, playing all over the place so yeah it was a uh, something I thought I'd lost that came back again oh that must have felt amazing to get that back yeah really and I the, the thing I've done is I started back into a daily practice of it so I practiced my juggling again and initially, it was uh, really ropey. You can imagine. Like, yeah. Really well, after 10 years off, any skill, yeah. I'm sure it's going to get rusty. Uh, really ropey. And then it, it came back. And now it's back to that thing that it had become just a job before. And now it's. I'm really thankful every time I get to do it. I'm really pleased that I'm doing it at all. And it kind of came back again quite good. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty pleased. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, one thing you mentioned there, which I guess uh, is another aspect of, of your kind of skill set, is you know you said you were climbing just using those two fingers, your two scissor fingers. Mm. So you are quite uh, keen on the outdoors and climbing and mountains? Yes, all that sort of stuff. And uh, which was uh, previously, I didn't really, I kept this private. I, I think it's important sometimes your professional life and your private life are separate and the thing that you're doing for your enjoyment stays separate. So I'd always done stuff like uh, like kayaking and wh wherever I went, I would you know kayak down the Grand Canyon or I'd climb up something. A lot of the time I would just go off on my own uh, into the woods. If, if there was something to climb, I'd just go off my own and do it. And then it's come round now that I'm sort of incorporating it more into the shows. I'm talking about it a bit in the shows and it, it's kind of, the two things have come together a little bit more now. And I think that kind of crossover kind of came to a peak with, with your Everest climb. You did a show called Adventure Comedian, mm. which was about that. Um, I mean, so it sounds like you've kind of got the, the kind of full circuit of things there in terms of that skill set. Really good that you kind of went back to the juggling. Going back to your kind of start on the kind of comedy circuit, you're kind of starting out as a comedian there. Did, did you kind of continue doing the circus performing as well? Or was this uh, just a sideline no. alongside that? It's completely, the, the standard form, even to this day, with somebody breaking into comedy is, uh, people don't really, you can't really make a living initially because it's on word of mouth and you've got to build up your reputation. And so we, we call it an open spot. So people would normally do open spots. And um, I went through the open spot process quite quickly because I'd already been an act for years. Yeah. It, it just takes you a while before you can do, you can make contact with enough comedy clubs. And remember, we didn't have the internet in, in those, we didn't have social media and the internet as such in those mm. days. And um, so while it was building up, I was actually doing both. And then it got to, it came to a head when I was full-time as a circus performer and full-time as a comedian and making those two things meet were ridiculous. So like I would, I, literally at one point, I went from doing a circus event in Exeter and I drove to Aberdeen 
to do a comedy gig. Wow. It was ridiculous, isn't it? And it's not financially, it doesn't make sense. It's just crazy. Yeah. So that's when I made the decision. I've, I've got to do one or the other. Let's give comedy a go. Let, let's see what, like, I, I literally went, let's do a year and see what happens. And um, yeah, as I say, still doing it. Yeah, I mean, a full drive from Exeter to Aberdeen for what, you know, a 20-minute spot or 30 minutes work at the other end seems seems bizarre now. But, I mean, I've, I've dipped my toe into the, the open mic circuit myself. I've, mm-hmm. I've done that for a couple of years. Obviously, the last six, seven months, there's not been much going on on that front, as you'll know. Um, I mean, from my own experience on that open mic comedy circuit, I think a lot of performers are pretty extroverted on stage and a few are pretty quiet off the stage. I'm not getting that vibe from you. Would you say you've always been a bit of a performer? Yeah, I, I, I am. And I think the thing with some, the thing that I very much try to teach with my, uh, when I'm doing my comedy sessions, when I'm teaching my comedy sessions is the closer you can get to being the truth of what you are, the, the easier it is to be a performer. Otherwise you're being an actor and you probably need to go and do acting training or something if you're being a at something that's not you. So yeah, yeah. Well, I'm quite gregarious. I'm friendly. Um, I, I always put the friendliness down to that I come from a small town in Ireland where everybody knew each other growing up. And so around here where I live in England, I live in the north of England. I know everybody because I say hello to everybody. I'm recognisable with my beard and because I get a lot of friendliness coming back to me because I know people. And um, it's uh, it's ridiculous because having I've had a big beard for 25 years or more years and I, I keep coming in and out of fashion yeah <laughs> there's re- been a recent fashion for having beard bit of a beard renaissance of late yeah yeah i think it's at the end now i get the impression that it's mustaches now or the yeah. a lot of guys are going for but yeah well the beard's just a more advanced mustache isn't that yeah, isn't yeah. That? you ever been tempted to take it off or is that now fully part of the face furniture Every so often I cut the ends of it because if it gets too long, once it starts, literally this, this is literally a, if I'm climbing and it looks like it's going to, even when it's plaited, if I'm climbing and it looks like it's going to tangle in something, I cut the ends off it. And, there and then? I, well, sometimes it's pretty easy to do, to be honest. It's, it's just a, a snip off the end. But I did at one point, so Sarah Millican, the English comedian, she was doing a thing where she was trying to get as many of her friends as possible to do something for children in need or something like that. And we came up with the idea that I would have a full shave. Like I would have my, shave my head, shave my beard, full body wax, and we would do it for charity. And I'd said, look, it needs to be done that it makes, like it makes 10 grand. We need to get, it needs to be something good. We just didn't have the time to do it. We did, And then it kind of fizzled away. And I guess maybe I would do something like that again. Well, the, the full Michael Phelps, full body shave. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Wow. Um, so you, who were your comedy inspirations when you were first starting out? So I was I very, very lucky with this. When I was uh, a juggler, I very much was watching other jugglers. And the thing that was... Uh, in those days, and probably still is, is that you learned off your elders. You would watch what the older people did and you would, you would learn off them. And so I've got a few people there that were, um, that, that gave me great advice. And I was literally, I was an annoying kid that I would go up to somebody, so the knife thrower, for example, there was a guy I worked with, he was a knife thrower. He must've been in his seventies. And I kept asking him to show me a particular trick and he, he wouldn't, he would just take, tell me to go away. So I would just bring him a cup of tea every break time and I would just like 
really just keep pestering him until eventually he got so annoyed he just showed me. Uh, but I was really lucky in that a juggler who's still regarded as being one of the best jugglers ever is a guy called Francis Brom. Francis Brom was around in, I think, like the 20s and 30s. And yeah. I read an interview with him and he said, if you want to be a great juggler, don't look at other jugglers, look at other art forms. And, and that really resonated with me. And so because I had that process of learning to juggle and trying to stand out as a juggler, when I came to comedy, I had people that I liked in comedy, but I deliberately tried not to be influenced by them because I knew that I wanted, we, we call it now the USP, don't we, your unique selling point. And I knew I needed a unique selling point. And if I was looking at the other guys that I liked and be, being like them, that was undermining what I already had as a unique selling point. Um, but my favorite comedian is, um, is Tommy Cooper. Oh, you know what, I was thinking that when you said about the adding the comedy to your act to kind of help you stand out, because that's pretty much exactly what Tommy Cooper did, wasn't he? He was a magician who had a career as a magician, but then as soon as he started adding the comedy in, became known for the comedy as much as the magic. Yeah, that's right. And he had been, apparently he'd been a very good magician in his in his day. Yeah, well, he did what Les Dawson did with the piano. He kind of dialed it down to seem like he was slightly incompetent with the magic because that added to the comedy. Yeah, so there, there's definitely something in that. So the, the act that I do, I've got an act that I do with a guy called Logie Logan. And he's a young juggler from Northern Ireland uh, with a big beard. And when we do our family shows, which is called Circus Sonus, and in Circus Sonus, he plays the part of my son, and he's like, he's like my son, we do this circus show. But we also have an adult circus show called Dirty Tattooed Circus Bastards. <laughs> it's done very well the last few years at Edinburgh and the Australian festivals. It's kind of like a rock and roll circus. We've got a lot of motorhead playing, and it's that kind of vibe. But what we do in that is, we deliberately, we do some straight juggling. And when then we say to the audience, that's what the other jugglers are doing. We're not going to do that. And we deliberately try to juggle things that we can't quite do. So instead right. of being slick, it's, they see us struggling with the so There's an element of risk in there. Totally an element of risk. And we even get people to bring things. They can bring whatever they want and we'll try and do the juggle. Pet dogs. Well, we haven't had any pet animals. We had an, an actual human-sized stuffed cuddly toy once which was quite an interesting thing uh, a lot of times people bring us broken like broken bottles and things oh, like geez. That. but the thing <laughs> it is is that like les dawson we could never do that thing of it trying it and, it and doing it wrong and making it entertaining if we weren't able to do the straight side of it yeah i think that's it i mean i think les dawson he was an incredible piano player by all accounts and you know for him to do what he did actually takes more skill than playing well in some yeah. ways I have a, um, I, I don't use it now. I, 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 I changed my quotes that I use on my publicity. I change them quite often and I try to keep them to be like quite up to date. But I had for a long time on my circus stuff, I had a quote from Les Dawson. And so I was, I was in a, a danger show, which was lying on bed and nails, broken glass. It was with a guy called Pep and we did a lot of fire. And we were working at the opening of the Manx Parliament in the Isle of Man. This would have been like mid, to, maybe the late 80s, probably. And um, at the end of the show, I, I got uh, called over and I was introduced to Les Dawson. And uh, he'd watched the show and he'd, he'd really liked the show. And he said, he said, great showmanship. And um, I said, can I use that? And he went, of course you can, son. And I put that on my publicity, Les Dawson, great showmanship. And to, to this day, 
that's one of the most that means a lot to me that quote i was very yeah. pleased. oh that's tremendous yeah because he was an older guy then he'd seen a lot hadn't he at that at that point so yeah meant a lot to me that quote oh lovely stuff so you say you do two kind of kinds of shows uh, you know the, the adult show and the kids show do you ever worry that you'll kind of mix up the act in between you, know, you suddenly start dropping some blue language in front of the kids or no. are you able to separate that yeah so the the a lot of comedians now there's a, there's been a trend uh, and a friend of mine does a good thing called comedy club for kids comedy club for kids spelt with k's comedy club for kids and um he dangerous uh, acronym there Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, possibly. <laughs> and um, he uh, he gets comedians, and often the comedians are doing uh, family-friendly shows for the first time. They're doing kids shows for the first time, and I always tell them, go away and write for it so that it's very different, because then you not you're not likely to swear, which is a problem, and also then you're not likely to be doing a joke. Like I've seen people do jokes about getting a mortgage. And you're looking at the children are eight. Like it's a room full of confused kids. Yeah. But for me, it's not been a problem because I came the other way. So I came from, yeah. you know, 10 years of, of doing family friendly stuff. And so my default would be not to swear. So, it's, yeah, it's good to have that kind of discipline uh, between the two. And I was kind of looking through your bio and it looks like you've performed in some pretty interesting places. One that kind of stuck out was you performed a show in an Italian prison. Is that right? Yeah, I did. So it was, oh, I can't think what year it was. It was like late 80s or early 90s. And basically they had a, a huge street festival in, Chir in Chirino. And um, I was working the street festival. And as part of that, what they did was they, um, they invited some of us to go to the local prison. And it's not like, it was a slightly odd one. So it's, it wasn't a young offender center in that they were, so they weren't children, but they were all young. So they were all guys, probably 18 to 25. There were none of the older people. So I'm not quite sure how that had worked. And I went and we just, we went there. I didn't really speak Italian. We went along, there were two Russian acrobats that did like a strength balancing acrobatic act. They're like, they look like bodybuilders, these guys. Yeah. They were dressed like Spartans in their costume. They did their bodybuilding thing and, and you can see the, you can imagine young men in prison like that, you know, all the muscles and the, you know, yeah. push-ups or whatever. And then I did mine and I hadn't even thought in advance. Uh, but what I did was I brought a machete juggling act. It was basically a knife throwing act that ended up with, I pretend I'm going to throw them uh, large machetes instead of the normal knife throwing knives. I throw them a little bit and stick them in a target that somebody is holding. And then I let somebody throw the machetes to me and I catch them and juggle. And so you went into a prison and gave knives to the inmates? Yes, literally did that, literally did that. And they'd never searched or anything. And on the point, just as I brought them out of my bag, you could kind of see that like, we had all the mayor and everybody was with us and dignitaries and the press. And you could literally see them going, oh, maybe we should have asked this Irish couple. <laughs> but the, the truth was as well, so I was quite young. I was in the same age group as those guys. And um, I've got a lot of tattoos. And in the costume I wore in those days, that costume for that act was like a martial arts type costume where I ended up in black Kung Fu trousers and a, a black vest. So my tattoos right. were on show. And when the, the show finished, the guys started coming over to talk to me about my tattoos. The, the young prisoners were talking about the tattoos. And the prison warden just took away my stuff and they just all said, oh, we'll see you, we'll see you in the reception area. And then they all left. And I was talking for ages to these young guys about tattoos. They were showing me their tattoos. 
And I looked around and I thought, I could just so easily have got locked in here. <laughs> could have just left me for all I know. I was performing here, you have to believe me. Yeah, trust me, I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, anywhere else you perform? Because you've got a long list of countries on your, on your website where you've gigged. I mean, do any kind of stand out? Yeah, so a few. So we went to, um, as in kind of myself and Robin Ants, who's um, uh, an English stand-up comedian, and yeah. science-based stuff. Myself and Robin Ants, and a guy who's passed away now called Malcolm Hardy. Malcolm was like one of the godfathers of the alternative comedy scene. And we went and performed in South Africa in 1997. So it was quite recently after apartheid had finished. And so yeah. we did the shows then, and um, we did it as a as a thing of your as a support. You know, we would never have gone when apartheid was on, and we all boycotted the country then. And so we we, we went as part of um, the thing of we're going to support this new country. We went over; it was really great tour. And then I toured after that. I went off on my own and went into the Trans Sky region, and literally there, the white people weren't going in there in the apartheid that was the stronghold of the ANC and yeah. I, I did a little tour of school shows there it was really really interesting because the, the kids were slightly scared of, of especially big white guys that looked like they might be Afrikaans so it was yeah. a very interesting place to go and I tend to do that I tend to tag on to my comedy work or my circus work I tend to tag on an interesting place so like lockdown I'd done the um, I'd done Fringe World Festival in Perth Western Australia I'd done the Adelaide Fringe with stand-up and circus shows. And then what I did was I, I'd gone to um, a place called Wadair. And Wadair is an Aboriginal community, uh, which is a one-hour flight outside of Darwin in the Northern Territories. And I'd gone to Wadair and I was teaching circus skills to the kids. But because it's, they have problems in those communities, they're, they're like children. They're, it's like they've got PTSD. And hmm. I, they were exactly like the kids I worked with in the, in Belfast in the 1980s when there was the troubles and yeah. and they had PTSD. And so it was really interesting to go and do that work. Then we got shut down. COVID shut that down. And that was the first thing that went in Australia because the Aboriginal elders uh, tend to have health problems. So right. As soon as there was something that got shut down. Well, I tend to do this. I tend to try and tag an interest. Like I would never have got to what air without doing that work I, you would never go to these are places that are when you could turn up but you probably wouldn't have the same welcome or access that you would do going in Absolutely. as you did you, you could turn up but you probably wouldn't be made welcome like when i was there um a lot of the young men were in prison because they'd had riots it's a proper it's a very very rough area yeah. Uh, um yeah i guess you could just you could just turn up um, but to be able to be there and like we worked in the school and we met the people and then I, I did some work down at the, they call it the rec, the recreational center. And because I've got the basketball skills, the, the young guys who are normally inaccessible to any kind of community outreach work, they came over to learn the basketball skills and kind of, we were kind of making headway. I, I was very disappointed to leave. We were making headway, especially with that group, that 16 plus group. They're a hard group to, to get and yeah. they're on the cusp of falling into, you know, the bad things in life and, you know, becoming gangsters or the drink and drugs type thing. And so we're just on the cusp of, I felt that we were making some progress with them, but then as I say, COVID shut us down. 
what, what kind of skills were you kind of working on them with? What kind of things were you teaching? So what we what we were doing there with the, with the smaller kids, like the school kid age group. What, what we were doing with them, we'd set up a uh, we'd set up a tightrope, and we'd have uh, the guy that I worked with is a guy called Hemlock. Hemlock used to be on the uh, Australian gymnastics team. He's a circus performer now. So we would get them to do somersaults and stuff like that. I would teach them that. Really, to be honest, they're pretty feral, those children. Like some of them literally, it was just the start of the school term. And some of them had just been living out, like literally living out in the bush. So yeah. wild kids. And the stuff that I try to do with them is you try to identify them. And just it's little tiny victories, little tiny victories, like just getting them engaging in something. So getting yeah. them to engage in the juggling even a little bit. Well then, and they're at school, so then maybe they have some success with that, and then maybe they engage a little bit with the school, and maybe it helps them along. And if nothing else, it gives them a giggle. It's a laugh. The, the, For sure. The bottom line: I mean, these kids are in a bad environment, and if you give them a bit of a good laugh, it's got to be good, hasn't it? Yeah. If school to them is somewhere that they go and feel uncomfortable, that they're not getting to grips with things, that it feels like this alien environment. I mean, they're never going to engage with curriculum and you know, maths or anything like that. So if you can give that kind of stepping stone on the way in through something that is fun, that anyone can kind of come to, they're not having to bring any sort of pre-existing knowledge as such. Mm. I think that's a really kind of powerful way to help so, kids engage with things. Especially, um, so it was the same, it's the same with kids um, all over, uh, is that if they choose the circus stuff themselves and they have some some, some success with that, the fact that they chose it themselves and it raises their self-esteem. And it, it might be that thing that maybe the teachers have been sort of going, you have to do this. You have to do maths. You have to be good at this. And maybe their parents are going, you know, maybe their dad's going, you, you should be better at football. I want you to be good at football, you know. And then this is something that they choose. Often it's the first thing they've chosen as their own thing. Yeah. Um, to be able to do that is good. And you can just imagine you know, the child goes back to their parents and goes, look, I can juggle. And their parents can't juggle and their parents are impressed. And it's all really great for their self-esteem. Yeah, it kind of encourages enthusiasm for an activity as opposed to them just kind of gritting their teeth and getting through it. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much as well. I very much think that if it's their choice, they engage with it more than if the school make them do it. You know, if you have to do it. So if they had to come and learn to juggle, it's not the same as, you can come and learn to juggle or you can come and have a go on the tightrope or whatever. Yeah. Brilliant. Pretty interesting places around the world. You've gigged South Africa, Australia, Italian prison. Kind of want to move on to uh, one of the bigger ones in every sense. 2016, uh, you headed out to Everest Base Camp. You broke a world record. You performed a gig up there at Gorak Shep. Tell me a bit more about that. How did that come about? So four years before that, uh, about, so uh, 2012, just 2012, 2013, people had planned that they were going to do a charity event uh, at Everest Base Camp. And the word had gone around comedians who was going to go. And some people got picked and um, it wasn't necessarily based on what experience they had or if they, if they went into the mountains, anything like that. They picked the team. And I'd roughly heard about this because one of my friends was going to do it. I think, oh, what a great thing to do. That's, that's brilliant. And then, uh, of course, there was there was an avalanche. Uh, there was an earthquake, wasn't there, in Nepal, and an avalanche. Yeah. Base camp got closed. So the project, um, what, the project uh, was cancelled. And then time passed. And then I was in uh, Perth, in Western Australia, 
and I'd been training, I'd been training in the hills anyway. So I was hell fat and I'd actually just done a, a, a friend of mine's an Australian comedian called Mickey D and Mickey's an ultra marathon runner. And he did an event where he ran a double marathon um, in the, it's called Kings Park in Perth, Western Australia. And he ran a double marathon. And part of it is a, a huge set of stairs. I, I don't know how many stairs, but a huge set of stairs. And it's called Jacob's Ladder and people use it for training runs and stuff. It's a massive set of stairs. And so what I'd done was to help him with the event overnight, a few of us got there, like we had a drinks table for him and uh, people would turn up and run a lap with them or a couple of laps with them to, to keep them going. And I ran all the stairs. I ran all the stairs with them. And so I was doing, um, so I did the stairs, whatever it was, 12 times or something. We did quite a lot of ascent with these stairs. So I'd done the stairs and he, he and I were joking about this, that, um, oh, we should go and do, we should go and climb a mountain somewhere. And the very next day, he had done this through the night and he was, he finished about midday and he crashed out because he'd done this. So he'd gone to sleep. And I got a text, like literally that day, I got a text going, do you want to go and do a comedy show at Mount Everest? And I literally thought, it's, the, the person that had sent me, I thought they were making a joke. I thought it was like a, uh, somebody just having a joke. And I went, yeah, sure. And then later that evening, I met Mickey again and we we're doing our shows and our festival stuff. And Mickey goes, did you get a text about going to Everest? I went, yeah, I did, I did. And he went, yeah, I did, do you think it's true? And I went, well, I've responded to it, yes. And then a long story short, so they let us go on the team. So the team was myself, Mickey D, uh, Wayne Deacon, who's another Australian who used to be a triathlete, and a guy called Tom Wigglesworth, who's an English uh, from Sheffield, and he does, yeah. lot, he does a lot of hill walking. And so we were the team, and then we went off to, to do... Me and Mickey went off to do the Adelaide Festival. He's from Adelaide. So we trained every day. We went hill running every day. We got, we got match fit. I live up in the hills here. So we got match fit for it. And then we went off. And what the deal was, we met up with a team in Nepal, uh, in Kathmandu. There was a group of people who'd come as the adventure holiday type people. That, you know, they, they, they'd raised money to come on this adventure holiday for charity. And long story short, we walk to Everest Base Camp just beside where that year they had the helipad there we set took eight days with acclimatization and so on set up right beside the helipad the audience started with about i'm going to say about up with our lot was about 20 people then there was about 50 then there was probably over 100 by the time i got on we had wow. shippers and everything were watching all the climbers at, at Everest Base Camp, a lot of people don't, a lot of people are trying to not get sick. So they're, you know, they're concerned about every time somebody new comes. So we were deliberately just outside Base Camp. Um, we're just across from the glacier. You can't see Everest from there anyway. But we, um, we'd seen Everest all the way up. Uh, we did the show. It was absolutely fantastic. I put a couple of visual gags in so the Sherpers could have a laugh. Nice. Then we were really lucky that the, the rest of the, the crew and everybody else left. And then Mickey and myself and one of our Sherpers uh, went to meet his cousins who were Sherpers that were, they were the mountain Sherpers. They're the high altitude Sherpers. We met the, the ice, the ice flow doctors, the guys that yeah. ropes up. We went up through base camp. We met a load of people, met some really famous climbers and some of whom had watched the show and then I got to walk over on my own while they were having a cup of tea. I walked across on my own and stood at the base of the ice flow. 
yeah. horses to start. And I looked up and thought, right, next time I'm here, I'm, I'm climbing this thing. Wow. And then, of course, I haven't got around to it. I have this notion, I had this notion that I would, um, so that year, I did an Edinburgh Festival show called Adventure Comedian, all about Everest, all, all just a whole show about the history of Everest and my experiences in Everest. And I, and then I toured that show. And my notion is that I would, I was planning to try by the time in my 60th year, I was going to try and have raised enough funding to climb Everest. So this month I'm going to be 57. So I've still got, I've lost a bit of momentum with it because of COVID, yeah. but I'm still aiming that that's the, the goal is that I'll have a summit attempt in, um, in my 60th year. That's the goal. Incredible. You could do a comedy gig up there as well, and then no one could ever beat your record. Yeah, well, do you know, you know what? The, it occurred to me that I wondered, and I, I've never, um, I've never taken this any further. So I'm sure I could probably research this and find out. It had occurred to me that you know, on the top, when when you get to the the summit of Everest, people have all all done different things. So like a, a Sherpa got up there, got naked at one mm. point. Uh, people have done different things. You know, they do selfies or they, they, they have a satellite phone, they phone their mom and things like that. And I wondered, had anyone ever juggled on the top of Everest? Mm. And I thought they, they might have done. So I, I did a, um, oh, it was a couple of years ago, me and my mate Rob uh, did a run up um, Mont Blanc and we were seeing how fast we could do it. And when we got to the top, I took some juggling balls and I videoed myself juggling on Mont Blanc and I only juggled three balls. And it occurred to me that I bet you nobody's done five balls on the top of Everest. Yeah. Maybe that might be the, uh, of course it would be dependent if you got fluky with the, the weather and so on. Yeah. That's the lottery of it being on a mountain, but uh, you'd probably start some kind of juggling world record arms race. You know, you do five, somebody will be up there doing six. Yeah. yeah. So this is exactly what's going on at the, at the minute. People are trying to set world records because normally with outside of lockdown, normally it's quite expensive because you have to have the Guinness person come and watch yeah. it. You have to. So I've, I've been involved in a couple of world records, and but you need the Guinness person to come and verify it, and so you pay for their time and uh, their travel and so on. But at the minute, they're accepting records that have just been videoed and verified by another person. So yeah. everyone I know is trying to set world records at the minute. Uh, it's open season on the world records. I might give one a go. Um, I had a guest on a couple of weeks ago, a guy called Dean Stott, who broke the world record cycling the Pan American Highway. And I said to him, as a kid, I always used to just try and find the easiest records to break in the Guinness Book of World Records. Like, what can I have a go at? But I like same mindset as him with yourself. You're not going for the easy ones. You're going, no, I'm going to climb Everest and I'm going to juggle up there. Yeah. My favorite story about world records is... There's a guy uh, in Newcastle, and it's years ago, it was like the 80s, and he sat atop of a flagpole that had a little platform, and he stayed on top of the flagpole for 27 days to beat the previous record, which was 26 days. And he uh, had to eat there and poo in a bag and lower it down. And, and in the interview I read with him, he said, um, he said something along the lines of, you know, I couldn't have done it without the support of my family. And I don't think this is a record that, that will be beaten. And he, he lived on top of this flagpole. And then it turned out that the previous record wasn't actually 26 days. It was 26 years. 
And it was, oh. it was one of those sadhus, you know, those Indian holy men that, yeah. that, you know, that hold their arm in the air for 14 years. Massive long fingernails. Yeah, yeah. So it was one of those guys who just lived his life on top of this flagpole. <laughs> 26 days, 27 days for no record. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. All that poo in a bag for nothing. <laughs> um, so that trek to Everest Base Camp, I mean, that's eight days. That's you know a longer journey to a gig than your 800 miles to, to Aberdeen. So it's a long trek there. Obviously, lots riding on you getting to base camp you know as a team everyone there able to perform you know i've not done the base camp track myself but you know it's quite a common thing the kumbu cough mm. a lot of people will develop a bit of a throat irritation did you do anything in particular just to keep yourself you know able to perform on that trick or were you just in with the rest of the trekkers as they were yeah so what we what happens with that high altitude cough is a lot of people get that what we what we did was we um so the adage is um climb high, sleep low, uh, um, uh, climb high, sleep low. So we, we did a lot of that and we would normally have got to where we were going. There was all, it was like eight hour days, eight hour treks. I carried 20 kilograms. I carried my own pack because I, I always like to do that. That's always been kind of my thing. When I've gone anywhere, I want to have my own stuff. And, but yeah. you stay in tea houses, which are basic, they're very, very basic, but you're, you know, it's hard to put a tent up. Uh, because of the terrain so you're yeah. in tea houses and you, so you just need to sleep now i haven't got a lot of stuff i had 20 kilograms which is my kind of uh that's kind of my baseline pack that's it i i got the idea somewhere that the british army when they do their fitness tests have 20 kilograms and so i've i've done it off that as being the kind of standard size of pack um but the thing with the cough was Everybody gets a cough and on the way up there, because you just don't want to not do it for the charity. The, the whole thing was the moment we did the gig, the, the, the instant the gig finished, I felt so relieved, all of us did, because you didn't want to go all that way and, and not achieve it. And I got quite a lot of sponsorship. Manford's Comedy Club, Jason Manford has a chain of comedy clubs. Manford's had sponsored me. I'd, I'd reached my, I, I, I was over my sponsorship target in the first day of it. So wow. there's a lot of money now that's not coming to me, a lot of money that's for a charity that I need. So there's a lot of pressure on, and some people were really sick. Everybody had a cough. And um, here's, here's a very weird thing that happened was when we were at that altitude, like rolling over in your sleeping bag, you're out of breath once you're up at altitude. Yeah. And once we were up towards base camp, like if we were talking like this, we would be really out of breath, like like as if we'd been running or something. We'd be really For sure. And so when we went on to do the thing, uh, Mickey D uh, hosted the show, and when he went on, he was inst so he's an ultra marathon runner. He went on, he was instantly gasping for breath, as were mm. all the performers. So I went on to do my, but we only had to do like twelve minutes, and I said, "Oh, there's two schools of thought. You can either try and conserve your energy and your breath." Uh, and do the thing in the own, or you can do it in the normal tempo and you'll run out of breath. So I'm just going to go until I fall over. <laughs> and I didn't at all. Waiting to come on, I was out of breath. The moment I finished the gig and I was chatting to the others, I was out of breath. On the stage during the show, I totally wasn't out of breath. I was doing star jumps at one point and Jeez. jokingly going, Oh, look, I'm not out of breath. And I was jokingly going to the climbers, you should have come and done my fitness routine. <laughs> the only thing I can think of it was, 
was that somehow, because I'd been a circus performer, and when I performed in big tops, it was in the days before um, headphone microphones were as accessible as they are now. They were a really expensive thing in those days. Sure. I'd spent a long period of my early career uh, acoustically, just, just talking loudly and shouting loudly. And I think somehow my body clicked back into that. And you, yeah. Yeah, it was a very, very weird thing. You got through it. Because, yeah, I was, I was kind of thinking, you know, up at altitude, like you say, you know, you have a, a conversation at normal volume or you kind of walk a little bit quickly and it's quite easy to get out of breath and difficult to, you know, bring your heart rate and breathing rate back down. You have experience of obviously performing. Did you have previous experience of altitude? Yeah, yeah. So I'd been in the Andes and I'd been, yeah, I, I'd been at altitude a fair bit before. And um, also on the way up, because we would get to where we were going usually by like about four o'clock and then people would go and, and you know, have a cap or whatever and then you'd eat and then you could, you'd just go to bed. There was nothing to do. And so Mickey and I were going out for little runs on the way up. So virtually every night on the way up, we went out for a little explore and a little run. And there's lots of, I, don't, I can't remember what they call them, but you know when people pile stones on top of each other? Like the cairns. Yeah. So there's things like that there all over and they're like Buddhist things and they've got like the flags on them and stuff. So we would really, you could really easily go out and go somewhere and just follow a line of flags and, and these different yeah. phone piles. So really easy not to get lost. It, um, so we would just go out for a run at night and we were doing things like we were doing hill sprints and stuff. And just for the laugh of that, you literally feel like you're, when you stop, you, you fall over. You literally feel like you're not breathing mm. at all. There's so little oxygen. Um, the great thing with that, there's some footage. It might be on my YouTube channel. There's some footage of me running up with my pack on, running at altitude. But when we ran back down again, when you're coming down, we just we just getting back. And as you're coming down, you literally feel like Superman. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. I can see that thing of, you know, when you hear athletes have trained at altitude and their performance is so much better. My, my pack um, felt like nothing at all. Yeah. But when you descend, like, or when you've been up sort of above four or 5,000 metres, every metre you come down, you do feel the strength returning. It's, and it happens, you notice it happening oh, as you yeah. descend. Yeah, you feel so strong, don't you? Yeah. So who who's in the audience? You mentioned you had some climbers in there. You had some people who'd climbed up with you. It must have been a bit weird for anyone who didn't know that show was going on at base camp. They just walked past and they're like, well, Everest is too commercial now. They've even got a comedy club. Well, so to, to be honest with you, it is too commercial, isn't it? It really is too commercial. And I think they need to they need to cut back on stuff. Like when, when we were there that day, um, if, if it had been that maybe 10 years ago, I probably wouldn't have gone and done it. I, I probably would have gone, no, I can't be involved in the commercialization of this thing. Yeah. Well, I think we're beyond that anyway. Like there's talk now, I, I don't know if you've heard this, there's talk of, so when the, um, the Beijing Olympics happened, the Chinese took a uh, Olympic torch to the summit. Yeah. To do it so you can drive to the Tibetan site, the Tibetan base camp. You can drive there, and it's a dirt road. And yeah. there's been talk now that they're going to bitumen that road. They're going to seal that road, and they've got they've designed an inflatable um, hotel 
that will be at Tibetan base camp. And from Tibetan base camp, you can see Everest. You, you can't from the Nepalese side. You can from the Tibetan side. And what will happen is coachloads of tourists, what they'll fly to an airport, they'll come yeah. up from a pressurized bus, they'll pull up, they'll go into the pressurized hotel type thing and the inflatable thing, and they'll have a meal uh, and view Everest. And then they'll go back in the coach and they'll they'll get driven away again. So oh. I think the commercialization of it is is you know it's it's there. It on the good side, people are making money that are in a very poor country. You know, for sure. I mean that that's it's a weird thing, Everest, because there are those two routes to the top. There's the Chinese side and the Nepalese side. It's like Mount Elbrus, you know, in Russia. That's got the southern route where you can come up on a ski lift and take a sort of snowmobile pretty much to the summit and then you've got this northern route that is more of that expedition where you sort of walk every step of the way just on that note of commercialization though i think what you guys did with that gig i think is totally excusable in in terms of the context of everything because you were raising money for charity that money was i believe going to help with the relief effort following that earthquake that sort of devastated nepal so i think in that context that's you know uh, in my eyes, you're completely fine. Yeah. So the the charity that we were doing it for was Save the Children. Yeah. Save the Children were rebuilding the schools in in Nepal, uh, in Kathmandu that the that the um, earthquake had destroyed. So the money was directly going there, um, which which is good. And look, also there's a thing now that's coming. It previously the to to go up with one of the big companies, your parents. 70 grand or something to go up Everest and anybody could go and you know even at advance at, 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 at camp four people are getting woken in the morning with an espresso you know there's all that there's all that side they call it the yak route don't they the, that that route up they call it the yak it's it's a uh, hike isn't it rather than a hike. Yeah. but now gradually Nepalese people are taking over the businesses and like the guy that took us that was our we had a, a guy called Don Pickett don't pick at expeditions. He's an English guy that, that runs stuff like this. Yeah. And we had uh, a guy called Gelgen, and he's a Sherpa, and he's the guy that ran it there. And he summited Everest twice himself. Adam has summited Everest uh, once from the Tibetan side. Uh, Gelgen has his own little business, and his family are the Sherpas. And as I said, we went and met the, the, the guy's cousin that was one of the other Sherpas. He'd been up, he'd, he'd summited nine times. I met a guy that had summited uh, 19 times. Wow. But gradually now, that the I think because of the internet, Nepalese people and not New Zealanders or Americans or British companies, it's becoming that the, the, the high altitude side of it and summiting it, the money's going directly to them. Because I heard that typically a high altitude Sherpa would, would make like two grand uh, American dollars, make 2,000 American dollars. But that person that their client probably paid 70,000 American dollars. Yeah. It would be much better if they were getting a bigger slice of it. And there's talk, I don't know if this, is, if this will happen, but there has been talk that they were going to stop using, allowing oxygen. So it was only a certain type of person that could climb. Um, there's probably safety risks with that because I think that would sort of limit the kind of people that could do it quite a lot, but you might have people who'd still give it a crack when perhaps it's not the safest thing for them to do. Yeah, yeah, it changes. I, I think it's going to just be 
Machu Picchu or something. It's going to be a tourist destination. And, yeah. Well, uh, what uh, Peru have done with Machu Picchu, they've over recent years, they've started really cutting back on the number of permits that, that are available now. And they're really, you know, no refunds, no transfers. I was meant to be out in Peru trekking to Machu Picchu in, I think it was February this year, but obviously COVID put paid to that. Um, but, you know, with them, you have to get those permits months in advance and, I think they looked at what's happening in places like Everest and Nepal with these trekking routes and just said, look, we'll increase the price of the permit, reduce the numbers available and take it from there. Yeah. So I was in, um, I, I went to Machu Picchu and did the, the hike up, the five day hike up in a group, in a tour group. And, um, I, you know, you're in a queue for five days. There's a queue. Mm. I, this was like 1995, probably. So it may have changed a bit. But when I got there, so I, I've, I've worked quite a lot in Mexico. I've got some friends in Mexico. I've trained quite a lot in Mexico. And um, they've said to me, oh, when you get there, everybody's looking through the sun gate and you see the sun come up. Then as soon as you get there, go up at Wanaya. I think it's called Wanaya Pichu. Wanaya Pichu, yeah. The pointy bit. Yeah. And the pointy bit is really steep and nobody goes. So when, when I was there, we, we went down from the sun gate in a mass of people. And me and a Scottish guy that was on the same group as me, we, we went up that one. We got to the summit of that. And there was like four people up there. And it's it's just a steep climb. It's not it's not a climb. It's a steep walk. Stairway type yeah. thing. Yeah, you don't need to use your hands. And we got up and you could just see the coaches driving up the windy road. And by the time we came down from there, you're just in a crowd of people. And what had happened was somebody had scratched their name into one of the altars. And so they were kicking off about that. And something happened that, if I'm remembering rightly, it was a beer commercial had filmed there and they had a big part of their rig had fallen on another stone altar, whatever, that's a unique in the world, the only one of its kind, and they'd broken part of it. So there was a big cry to stop people. But, but then... Yeah. On the other hand, Aguas, Aguas Calientes is the is the little town below there. And it only really exists because of the tourists. It's a completely for the tourists. And you sort of go, on, on one hand, these people have landed lucky that they've got Everest or they've got Machu Picchu or they've got whatever. You know, it should be them. If it's them making the money out of it, that's, I think that's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think you, you, you mentioned the internet's pretty good for that because previously pre-internet how is somebody from the uk from france from germany from wherever going to kind of get directly in touch with these nepalese trekking outfits you know so they did need that yeah. sort of our man in Kathmandu to sort of fix them up yeah that's right uh, with it. it's this is one of the lucky things with what i've done over the years is because i've been there working i've been somewhere to do um shows and then, so I've always tried to book things locally. I'll give you an example. I went, it was when SARS happened. So it was when the first big outbreak of SARS happened. I was in uh, Jakarta. I was doing shows in Jakarta. And one of the people that was around the comedy gigs was uh, an English businessman that lives out there. He has a, a, his wife actually ran the Five Star Hotel Association. She was a local lady. And, um, and he loaned me his secretary for the day and she took me around and I booked, um, I booked the boat and I flew over to Kalimantan, uh, Borneo, and had a boat trip up the river. And because there was SARS, there was nobody there. So it was me, I'm quite keen on bird watching. So 
we, we did a lot of bird watching. It was me, the captain of the boat, his crewman, and the tour guide who spoke some English. And it cost me 250 pounds. And it was great, really great. I got on really well with them. We had, we had a lovely time. Went did some school shows over there after I, after I did the, the trip. Had a great trip, saw the orangutans, all that stuff. Really good. And then afterwards, I, when I came back to the UK, I, I looked it up and for, there would normally be um, 20 people on that boat. And for them, not counting flights, would have been two grand. Whereas I had the whole thing for 250 quid. Wow. Was, but, you know, I was also braving SARS, to be honest. Sure. That's why there was nobody. So I guess now in the, in the middle of COVID, somebody's getting a bargain boat trip somewhere. It's kind of a bit heartbreaking. You mentioned Borneo. I was meant to be out climbing Kinabalu in, in March. And again, that just was canned because of this sort of COVID outbreak. In terms of yourself, though, I mean, you've said you've been out, you know, obviously Machu Picchu, Everest Base Camp, been out to Borneo. And before the show, you kind of showed me, you're sat in your room now and you've got sort of your musical instruments behind you, but then off to the corner, you've got all your climbing gear as well. So just tell me a bit more about other expeditions you've done. You know, where kind of sticks out around the world that you would sort of want the listeners to check out and maybe explore themselves. Oh, so something that people don't really uh, don't really check out very much. And it's just, I, my impression is it's on the cusp of becoming a bigger thing is uh, in Western Australia, they have the gold fields. And mm. the, the gold fields, the, the, uh, Kalgoorlie's nearby, a uh, big uh, city, uh, where, they, where they have massive gold mines. But what you can do is you can go out into the gold fields. Um, the place is called Leonardo, I believe, the, the local small town. And it's full of ghost towns from the original gold rush. And what you can do these days is you can go out and you can gold prospect but with a, a metal detector. Right. You're right. Gold prospecting with a metal detector. And uh, it's the little bits of gold that the original miners wouldn't have found because they were doing it by sight. And it's yeah. really fantastic countryside out there. And um, you can go out and do that. I thought it was fantastic. I also am very interested in, I really like Australia, bird watching, and I'm also very interested in reptiles. So I literally was there, I was camping. I was going out, I'd managed to meet this guy. I got lucky really in that this guy was just setting up a little business to take tourists, gold prospecting. And so I got to go out with him for free because he wanted to test it on me and he thought I would be the ideal person to test it on. So I got out into the, completely into the wilds with this guy. There's all the history of the, of the gold prospecting there. There's a lot, of there's also, Australia's a great country of course for the Aboriginal history. Uh, the oldest uninterrupted culture in, in the world. Yeah. Fantastic place. But yeah, it, it, I would say to people, if you ever got a chance and you wanted to do something that wasn't like the beach or that, you know, people go and they do look at the, you go to see a kangaroo in a nature reserve. Well, it's like the zoo, isn't it? But that felt to me, that felt like it was, it was still a bit wild and new. And to be honest, those people there again, those little communities, they could do with some tourist money to, to keep them alive. And there's the negative side of it, of the massive gold mining that's happening. And this is just like a little, this is more like the normal people that just want to live in those communities. And a lot of them are ghost towns. I, visit, I went out um, and visited a lot of the old ghost towns that were there and they just got abandoned and yeah. So yeah, if you're ever in Australia, check out the Western Australia gold fields. 
Fantastic. Do, do you ever get tempted just to book yourself a beach holiday, put your feet up and read a book? Can't do it. Literally cannot do it. I, I can't sit still at all. This this lockdown, so I've been back here in, I came back from Australia. I arrived back on the 12th of April and I've been back here and I've I've been in my bed here every night. So I've done a couple of gigs, done some other stuff, but I've always come home mm. and I worked out that's the longest period I've slept in my own bed since I left my mother's house when I was 16 years old. So wow. like normally in a given year, the month that I spend at, at Edinburgh Festival is the longest I'll be in one place, at like in, in any given year for like at least the last 25 years. So it's very weird for me now to be here. I am doing stuff. I'm quite enjoying doing other stuff that's different. I'm trying to embrace the problems of lockdown. Yeah. yeah, and I'm also for my work, like my whole Australian tour got cancelled. I've been building up to a Canadian tour. I did some gigs in in Newfoundland and uh, Western Canada, and I was I'd just been lining up. These things take a while to line up. I've been trying to line up uh, right up in Northern Canada to go into the. So I did a go a, a gig once uh, in uh, oh, what's it called Whitehorse, and it's mm. an oil town, and I wanted to get more up there into the right up into the north. And so all that was looking likely. And now, geez, the Australian side's definitely cancelled. The borders are shut. Yeah. Don't know don't know when any of that's coming around again. Geez, so you flew back into the UK in April. So you flew back into a lockdown from Australia. Were you out there for the bushfires? So no. So the bushfires were under control when I got to Australia. I had planned a cycle ride. I was going to cycle back from uh, Adelaide to Perth across the Nullarbor. That was what I was going to do. And then write that this year, what would have been this year's Edinburgh show and touring show. I would have, I was going to do that. And then the bushfires stopped that. So when I got to Australia, people were already in a kind of weird way because they'd had bushfires and it had been very scary and loads of people had, had been given a lot of money to charity and stuff. So it was a very... I don't know. There was a very disrupted vibe around the country anyway. And then I finished. Uh, I knew I couldn't do the ride. In retrospect, I probably could have done the ride if it had been uh, just the bushfires. Uh, the, when I, I drove through there, I drove from Perth to Adelaide uh, with all the kit for the show. So me and my yeah. Logie, we drove across there. And look, the, the, the countryside regenerates very quickly. And there's a roadhouse there. They call them roadhouses, but like a big petrol station, like a big services. And they usually have a little hotel and stuff at them. And and the one there, the Nullarbor Roadhouse, had, had actually been, people were trapped there by the bushfires. Jeez. When we went through, it was green. It had regenerated. So quickly as well. Really quickly, really quickly. But then when, the, when COVID came in, so I was in the Northern Territories, the Aboriginal community got shut down. I knew I didn't want to stay there because the the we knew it wasn't going to open again because of the health risks to the the elders, and I didn't I could have stayed there a bit longer, but I didn't want to stay longer because like I'd been out to Kakadu National Park, I'd done some camping, but the arts organisation that I was working for were were keeping me there, were had me in a hotel, and I just thought I can't keep spending these people's money for it was an arts organisation. So I, I, I made a phone call and I, I arranged some stand-up comedy gigs in Perth. In the time it took me to fly back to Perth, they closed down the comedy clubs. 
So that mm. line of work disappeared. Then as that went, I made a couple of phone calls and arranged some teaching in schools where I was going to do some of my storytelling workshops. Then they closed down. Then I literally looked like I was stuck in part and all of my dominoes, everything just was falling over. And then I, um, I got one of those flights where they almost like repatriation flights. Right. Uh, Qatar Airlines was the only one flying. And I flew back into Manchester and it really looked like nothing was happening. It really looked like nothing. We, we got off the plane. People weren't wearing masks. There wasn't really anything. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it looked like it didn't look like traveling in a global pandemic at all. No, strange times. Now, I know some people that have traveled recently and they say, you know, it is completely different now where, you know, there is masks and the temperature checks and everything going on. Uh, so, I mean, hopefully that will start to, you know, open back up again. But that must have been tough to kind of just see, like you say, the dominoes falling one by one. And I believe you kind of switched up when you got back. You do online comedy tutorials. Yeah, so what I did was I looked at it and thought what we obviously need to make a living edinburgh festival had cancelled edinburgh festival is usually a big like so i had i always do five different shows and so i had five shows a day for edinburgh and they all the whole thing went so for me that's like a major earner for me in in any given year and so i just thought oh I, what i'm trying to do was thought i'll just try not to have to use my savings if i can make enough of, and, and the truth is I've only filled my car twice since April. Like, yeah. Normally I'd be filling the car like two or three times a week because of the, the driving to the gigs. And yeah. I started doing this online teaching. I've, I've been teaching. It is something I've done for a while. I've worked in universities for, for a lot of years teaching. I started doing these online tutorials um, with everybody from really new comedians, quite a lot of circus acts, some people that are established names that you'll have seen on TV. Um, some people, one, one, one person in particular, that's one of my clients, uh, been a top professional in their field for 40 years. And when I started, they were somebody that I sort of looked up to. And so wow. they're trying to, it's amazing, they're an older person and they're trying to reinvent themselves to, what, to, be, to stay relevant after 40 years. And it's fantastic, it's inspiring. And as it turns out, because I do it on Zoom one-to-one, it really works. I've got clients in, uh, client in Turkey, New York, loads of people in Australia, all over Britain, uh, India. So it really works, the one-to-one -one thing on Zoom. I guess, yeah, that's the, in many ways, this whole pandemic's opened up a lot of opportunities that wouldn't have existed before. Yeah, I think so. I think it's difficult. As far as I can gather, people that are doing online shows are finding it difficult because the, the truth is we are so used to that all being free. So mm. I've got my comedy specials up there on, um, it's up there on YouTube and it has the thing on it, the option, buy me a coffee. You know, this thing that's become a common phrase, buy me a coffee. Yeah. And it's like, my, my take on it is it's like support the artist because if, if people don't support the artists, we literally won't be there anymore. Like I know people have had to go back into straight jobs and, driving jobs, whatever, and they might not come back again. Yeah. Um, but I think the thing is, like I realized, I've looked at YouTube as much as anybody, and I, I tend to look at things on, you know, how do you build a brick wall or how do you do, how do you fix a tap? And I never even remotely have thought, oh, I should give that person some money. 
And I think yeah. now that, that culture has changed. So now if I looked at a, a tutorial that helped me out, I, I probably would chuck them a couple of quid. If they had that buy me a coffee, I would I would give them a couple of quid. Um, yeah. Somebody at the gig last night, the first time this has ever happened, I, I did a show in Matlock last night, uh, a live gig. That's just down the road from me. I'm uh, sort of uh, Edwinstone, North Knotts. Ah, yeah. So this was in, in a bar in Matlock. It was uh, one of the Manford's chain of comedy comedy nights. Really fantastic. It was a nice bar called The Loft Bar. I don't know if you know it. Yeah. Really nice. Really well done. Social distancing. The whole, the whole thing. Really nicely done. And uh, somebody came up to me and went, um, oh, I wanted to do this in person. I was really pleased when I saw you were on. And they, they said to me, oh, I watched and enjoyed your comedy special on YouTube. And I, I didn't buy you a coffee. And I thought they were going to go, oh, because I'm a bit scant or something like that. And I just went, look, it's no problem. That's, it's, it's there for everybody, whether you can afford or not. Went, no, I, I want to give you in person. And they, they give me a fiver. And yeah. really nice, isn't it? Really nice. And so I think we'll get more of that. There'll be more things where... It's kind of my thought as well that in society, if you can afford to pay, you probably should pay because the other people that can't pay deserve to watch a show as well. Everyone needs a laugh or to learn how to fix a tap. Everybody needs that stuff. So my thought is now we'll just get used to it. Now that I'm aware of it, if I look at a YouTube video and it's got that option, I'm going to give the person a couple of quid or something. Um, Yeah, I think uh, I think we're moving into a different different terrain now. Yeah, maybe some kind of halfway state where, you know, there are live events, whether it's theater, comedy, um, whatever it could be. But then there's also always going to be a space, I think, for these online kind of shows and online ways of sort of getting access to that entertainment. Yeah. Well, do you know, interestingly, we, we, this is the thing. In, in the 1980s, when I was based in Belfast, we set up a community circus. And the community circus, in those days, of course, there was the sectarian problems and we were non-sectarian. So we had quite a lot of arts council funding. And what we did was we went wherever we did, wherever possible, we'll get funding money so that the performances for the public are free so that everybody could see it. So it wasn't yeah. just this, you know, it wasn't just opera. It wasn't just a specialist thing that people, only certain people could afford to see. And that ethos, I haven't been involved with that community circus as a decision maker for a, a long time. But they still go. They're a fantastic circus school. And every May, they do a thing called Festival of Fools. And um, I've done it a few times. And they get, like, absolutely the top circus performers and street performers from all over the world do a weekend in May, do a weekend of um, a long weekend of shows in the, in the city of Belfast, free to the members of public on the street. And that ethos has continued on from us in the 80s when we were thinking about it. And that's so good if you think, because often those those kids might never see a show. They mm. might never get to a show just because their parents can't afford the five pounds, 10 pounds, whatever it is. So I'm very keen on this, that if the people can't afford to pay, they do pay. And if they can't afford to pay, well, they, they deserve to get some entertainment anyway, don't they? Yeah, I can't, there was a, I think it was Radiohead released an album, like it was years ago and they put it online and you could download it and just pay what you wanted, anything from zero to whatever amount you wanted. And they actually made more money putting the album out that way than they would have done had they released it, you know, on a CD format and people pay a fixed price. So I think people will pay what they can afford or they'll pay what they think it is worth. But having access to it for more people, A, 
you open yourself up to a bigger audience who they'll get it for free that first time, but they might pay for it the next time. Um, and B, you know, you might end up realizing that the value of that piece of art, whatever it is, music, show, is worth more than you would have charged if it was just a fixed price. Yeah, yeah. So look, we at Edinburgh with the um, the Circus Sonus show that I do with Logie Logan. So it's a family friendly, mainly a juggling show and a lot of comedy in it. And what we do, we do it on the free festival. Now, the, Edinburgh is normally a place where Edinburgh Festival, Edinburgh Fringe, comedians would famously lose money. If people go there and they put on their big showcase show, they would normally lose like about five grand would be standard. Some people have lost a lot more money. It's expensive to be there, all of, all of that stuff. But what we do with the kids show is we put the kids show out there and we, we, at the end of it, we basically go, look, we'll be at the door on the way out. We've got a card reader, we have a bucket. Um, this is crowdfunded. This is crowdfunded for if you can pay, you're covering it for yourself for enjoying it. And if you can't afford to pay, it's been public for you. And that show made more money. It made so much money and there was such demand for it that this year we were going to do two shows back to back. Uh, last Edinburgh, we were turning away up to 200 people on any given day. But it was wow. just too popular. Because I think people like to feel that, that they're contributing and that they're, they're being part of something. And we wouldn't go back now. We wouldn't do that show back on as a, as a paid show at all. And uh, in Edinburgh, it goes quieter uh, when the Scottish children go back. So it's based around a, an English bank holiday as the scheduling of Edinburgh. Traditionally, it's been around. Yeah. So in that last week of Edinburgh, the Scottish kids have gone back to school. So numbers tend to drop. And in the past, I've done a thing where in that last week, we have just thrown it open to community groups and you know refugee groups and anybody, and they can come for free, completely yeah. free to that. And I think it's great. I think people, the people that like that, that like to contribute, really love that kind of model. Um, I, I know I do, I really do. Well, that's the thing with comedy, you pay or any show, a theater show, a gig, um, anything where you're going to watch a performance is you'll pay your money before you go. You're gambling that you're going to enjoy it, that you'll feel like that money's worth it. Whereas if you watch that piece, watch the show and you enjoy it and you're paying, you feel like you want to pay at that point because you did enjoy it. Yeah. So this is, I'm not, um, I, I like to think I'm not a particularly macho type person. But I do like the kind of vibe of I'll put my money where my mouth is. I'll let mm. you see it first and let you pay. I, I stand by this. The, I, I'll put my um, trust that you're going to like this enough that you're going to pay. Don't, you don't have to pay in advance. Pay at the end because yeah. I like to think it's a good show. And that, yeah, so I kind of like that thing of, yeah, I'll put my money where my mouth is. Sort of Brilliant. Vibe. Um, so you've mentioned performing around the country and, and when you're out on the road, you strike me as somebody who's in shape for a start. Um, you know, you're quite outdoorsy, you enjoy climbing, but that lifestyle of traveling around to gigs probably doesn't lend itself too well to, you know, a, a regime of fitness. How do you kind of stay focused on not falling into bad habits of Ginsters from service stations and cans of LucasAid on the M1 driving between gigs? Okay, so I did that. My standard thing was, you know, for a long time when I was a younger act, I would be having, um, you know, a bottle of Lucasade, a Mars bar and an egg sandwich, something like that. And then the best thing that I've done, uh, I've been vegetarian for a long time, uh, for like, oh, like more than 20 years. 
But the best thing that I did was I changed to a vegan diet. And I find the vegan diet really, so I'm often trying to have in excess of 4,000 calories in a day because I'm, so I'm often trying to, a lot of, uh, I had got big in the past. I'd been powerlifting and I deliberately got, I was 18 and a half stone at one point because I was going for a casting for Game of Thrones. Wow. And so I had got big and I was, and then I lost that, I dropped that weight down, I'm probably 13 stone now, which is a cycling, that's a cycling weight for me. And I can move quite easily in my weight. I can get bigger and smaller uh, kind of quite easily. But I am a standard around about 4,000 calories. Because I'm vegan, I um, as a as a diet, because I'm vegan as a diet and as a, uh, to get my energy levels up, I eat six times a day. And that means you just have to plan anyway. You just, you just can't. So you can't think you're going to stop at a services and get something to eat. So I just have everything pre-planned. I use gyms all over the country that I've, I've found from going around. I tend to do that thing of get a day pass or often or often as not, I put something on Facebook and somebody will bring me as their guest. So wow. I quite often get that. Sometimes I do in a different world. I could imagine myself being a, a PT instructor. So mm. often what I'll do is I'll do a training session with somebody. I'll give them a training session in exchange for them bringing me to the gym as a, as a guest. Um, and so I do that. And um, yeah, I find it's quite easy to do. If you, like even in the hotel room, you can do body weight exercises anyway. And I quite like the challenge of getting it done anyway, you know? Yeah. It, it strikes me that, you know, you, you view that as, as downtime is your exercise. Downtime isn't sitting on the couch watching a film. No, not at all. So, and also because of, because of my background. So I played quite serious rugby all through school and, and even in my early 20s. And it was actually, I was working as a professional juggler. And one weekend, I, we, in Ireland, we would say that you've staved your finger. I don't know what English people would say. You know when you bang your finger where it's hit head on? So rather than... Like impacting it down into your hand. Yeah, like it pushes yeah. and it's like bruised inside, but it's, it hasn't been twisted. And I did that and I missed a gig and I had, to, I had to give up playing rugby. But then I had that career as a circus performer. Circus performer, you need to have more than one string to your bow. So the thing I, all, most people have to have two acts. So in, as well as my juggling, I, I was the bass man in an acrobatic troupe. So I was the guy that got stood on. Wow. From rugby and from circus, I'm almost the last man standing out of my group of friends because it takes so much toll on your body. And, and sure. literally now, I think if I stop training, it'll start going wrong. I'm, I'm keeping it all moving. Like I've got loads of workarounds. I've got loads of injuries that I'm working around that are just things like five years ago, uh, my, the specialist said I needed a hip replacement. I, I didn't have time for a hip replacement. <laughs> I still haven't had a hip replacement. And yesterday I was squatting at the gym and I'm working around it all. So it is that, like I have an incentive that I think as soon as, as soon as I stop, yeah, it's all going to fall apart. That's like the middle-aged version of the line from Predator, you know, I don't have time to bleed. I don't have time for a hip replacement. You know, this is the thing, you know, I, I, I this is only based on my own anecdotal experience, but you know that expression when people go middle-aged spread 
and specifically in men, they say yeah. middle-aged spread. And so typically, and like, look, you know, we all know loads of people like this, they get to their, their late 40s or their 50s, and they start to get um, like that kind of fat under your armpits, and they get like a beer belly and stuff. And, and that fat, that's literally Mother Nature trying to kill you. Mm. By the 50s, you're no longer viable as a breeding source. And you're no longer, you've raised your kids. You've done whatever you're doing with that. And that's literally, somebody in their 50s, typically their child would be coming up to their late teens and breeding age. And I think it's literally Mother Nature's trying to get you out of the food chain to allow the new DNA to come through. So you've got to fight off that middle age spread thing before it does kill you. Yeah, I mean, you say that happens in the 40s and 50s. I'm in my late 30s, and uh, that's part of the reason I started this podcast, because the, the muffin top was growing a bit too big for my liking. Be, be careful, because around about the age of 35, uh, in, in the meal, um, so men's testosterone starts to drop. And when your testosterone starts to drop, I think that's when this different fat starts to come. So you can keep all that, you can keep your bone density up by doing weight training. And uh, uh, you really want to do that. You really want to do it. So now you've identified that that's coming. You should try and not let it come because once you get it, it's very hard to get back off again. For, for sure, for sure. Um, I, I have kind of embarked on a, a bit of a training plan at the minute. And honestly, it's, it's not as difficult as I thought it would be. Uh, I got myself a bike and uh, on the back of speaking to one of my past guests and that's been a really good way to get out there and, and kind of stay a bit active. I think for, for yourself, it sounds like your downtime is just, you know, working out, staying active. But if you had to uh, take a night on the sofa, just kind of putting your feet up, you know, what's on the TV? Who are you with? What are your snacks? Oh, so, so, so no snacks, but what I totally do here is, um, we've just done it recently, it's the first time in years that we've managed to do this, is the great pleasure in our house is if we can sit down and watch the Tour de France live. Yeah. So, Did you watch the, the last? Yeah, yeah. So we watched it. We, got, we managed to see quite a few. I like the hills. We live in the hills and I, I cycle on the hills. And we, um, yeah, that thing of being able to watch a whole stage of the tour feels like such a privilege because I don't normally have the time to do that. So we've yeah. really enjoyed that. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. Well, if anyone does has listened to this, they want to kind of find out more about you, maybe see some of the online gigs or live gigs you're doing, where can they find out more information? So if they go to martinmore.com, that's my website. And my surname is just spelled M O R. So it's Martin Moore. Uh, on the internet, there is, uh, I've got my own channel, and it's, again, it's Jeff, you look up Martin Moore. There's a thing that I've put out there I, I wanted to do as a sort of contribution to trying to keep things, um, to keep people entertained. And it's, a, again, it's a, it's a free thing. I have a channel called Funny Happy Stuff. Funny Happy Stuff on YouTube. And I'm doing a series of how to juggle videos. I put out one a week. Uh, we must be about, I must be about five or six into it now. And it goes from basic ball juggling and it will go all the way through to be a fully comprehensive juggling course. And it's on there free. There's the buy me a coffee option if somebody suddenly uh, feels that they're flush. But I'm really encouraging people to look at it because it's something you can do in your house. Uh, you can do it from home. The thing about juggling is as we get older, 
uh, with the middle age spread, all those bad things, we lose hand-to-eye coordination, our balance goes off, we lose stuff. And if you don't use it, you lose it. The juggling really keeps people young. And when I've worked with older people and taught them to juggle, it gets them younger again. So it's on there, funny, happy stuff. It's free um, and it's fun. And it's easy juggling tricks at this point. And uh, maybe people might want to have a look, maybe subscribe and do a bit of juggling while they're in the house. That's fantastic. I'll put links to that in the show notes so anyone listening can just kind of scroll down and click on those. I've got two left hands, so I will give this juggling a try. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. It's really good. And because it's fun, it's exercises that will keep... So for example, one of the things that I taught, I then went to the physio. I'm having a little bit of difficulty with a a rotator cuff uh, injury in my shoulder. And one of the things that I've been teaching as an exercise turned out to be exactly the same exercise that the physio gave me, but I was teaching people to do it with two balls as a juggling exercise. And it was actually a rotator cuff exercise that my physio showed me. So it does wow. lots of benefits. I'm kind of looking into this a little bit now because I think I, I could have, I could make it find a deeper knowledge to this stuff and its applications. So you could literally be doing your physio while just having a giggle and it's something you can do with your kids it's something you can do impress your friends it's just a fun thing and it will help your rotator cuff so yeah fantastic well it's one of those things like the the kind of lessons with the kids out in australia that's a stepping stone into something that is a lot more beneficial but doesn't feel like it is yeah it's hard work when you embark on it yeah it's good and now that i'm not fighting traffic all the time now that i'm not trying to get the gigs and stuck at you know, a diversion on the M62. Now that I've got more time for this stuff, I'm starting to see things in it that I can sort of, um, I can project on the internet and that are beneficial in various different ways. And with the bottom line of, it's all just a good laugh anyway. And that's enough in some cases, just having a laugh is enough. And if it happens to have this other benefit, well, happy days. It's all happy days, isn't it? Brilliant. No, I fully agree with that. Great. Well, uh, Martin, this has been uh, a pleasure. I think we covered a lot of ground there. I very much enjoyed this conversation. I uh, hope the online gigs go well. I hope you get back out on stage on the live gigs soon. I think a lot of people are looking forward to that. Um, and I look forward to kind of catching up with you again at some point in the future. Maybe see you on the comedy circuit sometime. Maybe indeed. Fantastic. Thank you very much for having me and good luck with the podcast, mate. Cheers. Speak soon. Thanks. There you go, Martin Moore, adventure comedian. One thing that stuck with me from that was the way that Martin looks at exercise and being active, not as a chore, but actually as his downtime. Um, And I think if you can do that, then finding the motivation to do more will be easier. I really liked his idea of using these kind of stepping stones to kind of introduce people into a bigger world, you know, like he did with juggling to encourage those kids to engage with school. And I think it can be a powerful tool to kind of take your way into being a little bit more active or trying new things or just really getting off the couch and experiencing the world. It's funny because over the past few weeks in starting this podcast, that's exactly what I've been doing. Um, You've been looking at that time spent on the bike or working out as leisure time. I mean, that's mostly because I use it as time to listen to a podcast or watch a film while working out. But, you know, that's just how I trick my brain into thinking that this is you know pleasure time and downtime so if you can find that little trick for yourself then i think you are 
on to a winner. Um, if you are enjoying the podcast, then why not hit that subscribe button? If you listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or even now Google Podcasts, hit the subscribe button. You'll get notifications when there is a new episode um, on whichever platform you're listening to. And, you know, if you're not enjoying it, then uh, fair play for still sticking with this episode up until this point. You can find us over on social media. We are at CouchKickerPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, that's where we'll kind of post up new episodes and any kind of backgrounds on our guests, little previews, and so on. If you know someone who'd benefit from getting their behinds up off the couch, then please do share this podcast with them, share some of our posts and tag people in them. Uh, it all helps and is much appreciated. One final word of thanks to our sponsors, Action Challenge. Pushing yourself further comes in many forms. An Action Challenge offer a range of events, challenges and treks that will do just that, push you further. If you want to follow in Martin's footsteps and take that trail all the way up to Everest Base Camp, witness the world's highest mountain for yourself, then they offer a fully supported trek through the Himalayas to Everest Base Camp with a UK mountain leader, with a UK medic. They include all of your meals, your accommodation, and your flights, and they are fully at all protected. They also back up every booking with a five-star promise, which means that if your chosen date needs to be rearranged, say due to a lockdown, then you can change that date free of charge. You can get a credit note for a future booking, or if you decide it's not for you, you can get a no questions asked refund. And to top it all off, they will give you £100 of any international challenge when you use the code COUCH. That's code C-O-U-C-H to get £100 of any international challenge. So why not check out the challenges that Action Challenge have, save yourself 100 quid, perhaps follow in Martin's footsteps or take on something different. Whatever you do, it'll help you push yourself further, kick your couch and get out there. That's all from me and I'll see you next time. Yeah.